0: The new animated movie Encanto is getting a lot of attention from kids and grown ups alike.
1: Hey, what's my gift up? My cousin's ceremony is tonight. What's his gift? We're gonna find out. What's your gift? Who's asking? Us? Well, us. I can't just talk about myself. I'm only part of the amazing Madrigals. Who's all the amazing Madrigals? You're not gonna leave me alone, are you?
0: Encanto tells the story of a Colombian family with diverse magical powers. And a range of skin tones.
1: This is our home, we've got every generation so full of music, a rhythm of its own design. You know, you've seen kind of since the movie came out, you see kids, um, parents have taken pictures of their kids next to the TV and have seen their kids just zoom in on these images because it's the first time that they've seen another kid on TV that looks like them and that says words like tío and tía um, or abuela, um, these Spanish words to describe family that, that they've never heard on TV.
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is with good reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, how kids understand and celebrate their Latino and Latinx identity. Later, we'll explore how Cuban immigrants after the Mariel
2: boatlift made sense of their new Latino American identity in Miami. In Cuba, for them, national identity is more important than racial identity. Whereas in the U.S., they saw it as being the opposite, that their Blackness stood out most to the people that they encountered.
0: But first, little kids absorb everything around them, from the words we say to the way we move and dress. Psychologist Chelsea Williams says long before we realize it, little kids are also absorbing attitudes about race and ethnicity. Chelsea Williams is a professor of developmental psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University. She studies how parents can help young Latinx kids be proud of their identity
1: you know, young kids are processing information about their culture from day one. So we even know that infants look at at people differently based on the racial groups of people they've been exposed to. So already from the beginning, children notice race. Um, It's something that they are seeing and they visibly are processing that information. Um, I often get this question of, well, when do we start? Um, how early is too early are we are we should we start should we wait until they're teenagers or should we wait a little bit until they can process this information a little bit better um and my answer to that is there's never a time that's too early it's important that we have these conversations because we know right from the beginning children are are already processing information about race. And when they get to school or when they get to daycare or when they are interacting with others, they have all of that information in their mind.
0: It's fascinating. There have been studies, as you mentioned, that infants who are not exposed to racial diversity react differently to people of different races. Describe one of those studies or the kind of thing researchers learned from it.
1: So what researchers have really found is, again, that kids, they respond differently. So if they're not exposed to others who are different than their racial background, for example, they look at them in different ways than they would somebody whose racial background they have seen before. In a lot of my work, we're finding that it's impacting their social skills. The better and more positively they think about their cultural group, we're seeing better effects in interacting with their peers. We're seeing it affect their behavior. Um, We're seeing better mental health for young kids. And so it's really important that we're thinking about how to support families and how they're engaging in these conversations.
0: What are some common approaches that parents and teachers have used that you've seen go a little wrong either at home or in the classroom?
1: Yeah. One strategy that we've seen that consistently doesn't work that is less effective is a colorblind strategy, trying to avoid conversations about race or pretending that race and ethnicity isn't important or it's something that we're gonna just not talk about. And what we find is that Young children of color particularly have experiences very early on where I'm seeing from some of my work that even as early as five, children are reporting negative experiences about their culture. And by having conversations with children and similarly with white children, having conversations about race with them early, teaching them how to be an ally, teaching them about the systems that exist in the U.S. and helping them Um, all children to feel comfortable um, and to feel positively about who they are, it helps children to have better development and to have better identities. By having these positive conversations with children, by showing them all the really great things about culture and about race um, and about their own own aspects of who they are, we're seeing that that prepares them for those negative conversations. And it also helps them to have better development. So- It's important because we know that in the US, we don't live in a society that's colorblind. So when we're not having those conversations or we're unprepared ourselves to have those conversations, what we see is that it's really a missed opportunity because children are already having those experiences. We're just not part of them. And so a lot of my discussions with caregivers is is really around how can we do better and what tools do you need or how can we help you to to have those conversations and to give you the support when, when, uh, when you engage in them.
0: You look specifically at Latinx
1: children. Mm-hmm. What does it look like for a little child to be exploring their Latinx identity? We know that young kids process and they see race, right? So they see skin tone, for example. They see uh, hair texture. They see how people look. What they're learning is the culture that goes with those varying skin tones and those varying hair textures or this socially constructed idea of race. Um, They're learning about those things. But then when caregivers or teachers or, or other socializers engage in teaching them, then they can learn about... The cultural values. Um, for example, we know in Latinx culture, there's there's often a, a value called familismo or familism, which is really this centering of family. Um, family is very important to us, and we teach children um, to to really center the family and and um, in decision making, really think about the family. So children can learn that that's a part of of our culture. That's a part of our traditions. That's how we take care of of our family. Um, and kids can learn. You know, in Latinx culture, we have lots of different skin tones and those skin tones are beautiful. You look Latinx, you look Latino or Latina, regardless of what your skin tone looks like. And sometimes um, those aren't always the messages we see in society, right? We know that colorism pervades society. We know that there is often a bias towards lighter skin tones. But if you see, even just in, um, you know, Encanto just came out, this amazing uh, movie about a Colombian family. And if you look at the character's, They range in skin tone. They did a really great job of depicting the diversity that exists. And, you know, you've seen kind of since the movie came out, you see kids, um, parents have taken pictures of their kids next to the TV and have seen their kids just zoom in on these images because it's the first time that they've seen another kid on TV that looks like them and that says words like tío and tía um, or abuela, um, these Spanish words to describe family that, that they've never heard on TV paired with these images of folks who look like them. Right. And so that's very powerful. Representation is very powerful. And so to be able to kind of connect the visual things that children are learning along with the connection to that's our culture that gives a, a, a child something to be really proud of. Um, that gives them something to, uh, t- to be excited about. Um, as they're you know piecing together the information that they're getting from society around them, um, they're learning all of that. and that is what really identity development is about is learning about these aspects of your culture and how that connects to who you are um, and what you stand for and what's important to you as you're as you're getting older.
0: You've also looked specifically at Mexican mothers modeling positive attitudes about their ethnicity to their daughters. Mm-hmm. What did you see between the mothers and daughters? Is that what's going on?
1: Yeah. So we we found in some of this work that um, that caregivers really matter, um, and and caregivers matter in a lot of different ways. So one way is is what they do intentionally. So how they have these conversation conversations directly with um, with their daughters. But the other way is really in their own attributes and their own attitudes that they bring to the table. Um, and so we know you know, parents also have their own their own ideas about their culture and their own identity. And what we're seeing is that when caregivers feel really positively about being Mexican, for example, they not only teach their daughters about being Mexican, but that impacts how their daughters see themselves over time. Um, and so it's really important to um, to to when we're thinking about this to check in on caregivers um, because they're bringing a lot to the table themselves and we want to make sure that they are having an opportunity to kind of check in with that. Um, have they had an opportunity to uh, consider what their own identity is and what some of their own fears are around these conversations. Um, you know, you really have to meet parents where they are uh, when, you, when you're kind of working with, with folks um, around how they socialize with respect to ethnicity and race. And what we're learning is that really matters for their children, um, both in, in terms of, of what their kids are seeing um, and the conversations they're receiving from caregivers.
0: What do we say to children when they have negative experiences, when they witness racism?
1: Yes. Children learn very quickly where it's a safe space for them to talk about things and where it's off limits. Um, And, you know... What we would say to kids is is you know helping them talk through what what did they notice about the event or the experience that they had that was troubling for them um, sometimes kids just want to talk it out um you know you acknowledge their their feelings in the moment you help them kind of process through that and then you talk about some of the great things about their culture and the great things about um who they are um and if you know if they've experienced a tough situation really ex- explaining um or talking through that with them is powerful. So you know, on a on a kind of personal level too, after George Floyd happened, my nephew um, came to me and he said, "Titi, um, that's you know the word Puerto Rican word for <laughs> for aunt." Um, Titi, yeah. I, I saw this um, thing on TV and 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 I heard this guy named George Floyd. What did, what happened? I want to know what happened. And I said, you know, let's table that for a minute. I this is a really important conversation and I want to come back to this. Um, but TT wants to make sure that she thinks about what she's saying so we can have a good conversation. And he's like, okay, TT," and then he, you know, ran away. Um, but when <laughs> w- when it happened, I wanted to make sure that, th- that I had thought about it, right? There's a lot of personal feelings I had. Um, there's a lot of worry. I have an African-American husband. There's a lot of worry in my own family, right? So I wanted to make sure that I... S- I kind of prepared for that conversation. I knew it was going to be heavy for me and I wanted to make sure I had the right words. Um, And so, you know, that evening I I paused and I I talked to my husband. I said, hey, Blakey asked me about George Floyd. Let's talk about what what, some key points we want to talk to him about this incident. And so we did this thing that I like to tell caregivers to do, which is called a circle back, um, where in the moment your kid may ask you something, you have no idea what to say. It like floors you because kids say, things all the time, right? They ask you questions that you just aren't ready for. Um, and in that moment, I wanted to make sure that I had the right words to talk to him and so, yeah, I, I definitely encourage family members that, you know, when you're engaging in these conversations, it's okay to feel like you need a moment and it's okay to, to do the circle backs and, you know, take it from there when you're ready to have that conversation.
0: Well, Chelsea Williams, this is wonderful. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here today.
0: Chelsea Williams is a professor of developmental psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University. The 1980 Mariel Boatlift brought 125,000 Cuban immigrants to Florida. Unlike earlier waves of immigration, many of the Mariel Cubans were black, and their arrival changed the already complex racial and ethnic dynamics of Miami. Monica Gossin is a professor of sociology at William and Mary. She's the author of *The Politics of Racial Division: Interethnic Struggles for Legitimacy in Multicultural Miami*. Monica, what was it that inspired you to study race relations in Miami when you had grown up across the country in California?
2: Oh, yes. You know, growing up in California as a Black person, I was surrounded by people who had come from other countries, who were immigrants from other countries, particularly Latin America. And I was really interested in the convergences um, between Blackness and Latinones, I was um, able to observe in California, for instance, in Los Angeles, where certain neighborhoods that had been traditionally African-American had begun to transform and become mostly Mexican, let's say. And so these transformations, I was really interested in the types of dynamics that would happen between African-Americans and Mexicans or other Latinos as they're kind of grappling for space and for recognition in in this country, which unfortunately has told both African-Americans and immigrants that they don't fully belong. And I ended up looking at Miami because of the fact that it does have a larger population of people who are at these intersections. I was really interested in, in, in looking closely at the dynamics and see what they tell us about our nation and about the porousness of boundaries, but also the way that um, racial power operates to try to maintain the boundaries between these groups.
0: Describe for me the first big wave of Cuban immigrants to Miami. This was in the 50s and 60s, right?
2: Yes. Um, So there is a long history of Cubans coming to Miami and coming to the United States. But we had this much larger wave of Cubans who came after Fidel Castro came to power in 1959. And they were more likely to be the wealthier people of Cuba. And they lost the most um, when Castro came into power. And because the United States was in the midst of the Cold War, the United States decided to open its arms to the Cubans who came in the 60s and 70s. And they were generally welcomed um, by U.S. policy to the United States.
0: What about people in Miami? How were they received by Miami people?
2: It's interesting to see that there was a bit of conflict when they started to arrive. There were some people who were also um, taking the stance that the new Cubans were like the new Horatio Alger's coming to United States and coming to find their fortune, and um, they were encouraging of this. But there were also those who felt that that something was being lost—that too many foreigners, if, if you will, are coming to our shores and that we need to, quote, save Miami from the Cubans. How
0: did this wave of Cubans from the 60s and 70s, how did they differ from the later wave that came on the so-called Mariel boat lift? That was in 1980. Tell me about the boat lift and the people who came aboard that way.
2: The people who came during the Mariel boat lift were more likely to be the poorer folk in Cuba. Um, They had become fed up with some of the loss of freedoms, um, some of the ways that the promises of the revolution they felt weren't all being um, upheld. And so a group of Cubans decided to storm the Peruvian embassy in a show of protest. And so Fidel Castro, angered by this, show of dissent decided to open up the gates if you will and allow people who did not want to be there to leave and become the united states problem is is the way that he characterized it that they were the undesirables of cuba and unfortunately once they arrived in the united states this stigma followed them and was picked up on in the united states as well and so this group was stigmatized in contrast to the earlier waves who were seen as these anti-communist heroes who should be welcomed.
0: What about the African-American population that was already in Miami when the first wave and the second wave came along? What sort of impact did the arrival of the Cuban immigrants have on them?
2: It was a very complicated issue for African-Americans. One of the big things that they saw was the contrast between the way that they had been treated historically in the area by the time that cubans were coming especially during mariel african americans had just won some of the battles for civil rights that they had been fighting but they could see that many of those battles still remained And while they felt that they were being ignored by the local and federal government, then we had this group of Cubans who were coming in and who were being welcomed with a lot of aid in the form of business loans and other forms of aid to help them resettle. And so there was quite a bit of resentment among some African-Americans about the differential treatment of these groups.
0: Resentment to both the wave of the 60s and 70s, and then the 80s also?
2: Yes, it had already been established from the waves who had come during the 60s and 70s. Those waves had become very successful in Miami, Um, being able to become the CEOs of businesses, they were often hiring. And um, what I found in my research looking at African-American newspapers in Miami is that um, they were complaining that, you know, some of these uh, new Cuban business owners were discriminating against Black people in favor of Spanish speakers. And so there was some resentment that was already put in place Was there an
0: attempt to get these two groups to align politically, or was that hopeless?
2: I think that there were many Black leaders, including Martin Luther King, who had warned against this kind of politics, racial politics of division, to use the title of my book, which they argued were being put in place by the mainstream white establishment. And so they were arguing that there is a need for African-Americans and for Cubans to come together and align themselves together. And so we did hear those voices as well. There was multiple voices. There were those African-Americans who were in favor of these alignments and those who were quite concerned that the Cubans were going to displace them.
0: Was there more common ground between the Miami African-American community and the people who came with a marial boatlift?
2: So there is this long history of African-American and Cuban convergences with African-Americans supporting Black Cubans on the island in, in the 19th century. So there's this long history of solidarity that African-Americans and Cubans, Black Cubans who were arriving in the United States could draw upon. And so African-Americans were taking note of the fact that the Black Cubans who were arriving during Mariel were experiencing racism as well, that they were not being treated the same as the white Cubans who were arriving during Mariel or the white Cubans who had come in earlier waves.
0: You interviewed a number of Black Cubans who arrived in Miami at that time. Tell me what you noticed about the experiences they had
2: as far as navigating their reception. Yes, I was really struck by their experience, something that came up over and over again, a feeling that they were caught in the middle. One of the issues that they ran into is that not only were they not fully accepted by the mainstream white Americans who were not happy that a new wave of Cubans were coming into the area. And there was also some animosity um, that was expressed from African Americans, but also the Cubans who were previously in the area, who had come in the sixties and seventies did not always seem accepting of them in particular because they were black. For example, I can give the case of Mariela, who was a dancer who came here and she was expecting that she would be well received and welcomed by her compatriots, by people who are also Cuban. But she found that um, that when she would go to the market, and I'm reading a, a quote from her, when I would go to the market, people would ask if I am American. Other Cubans do in English. It's the way I look or something. It's funny. They come with a funny accent saying, May I help you? And I know it's an English speaking country, but most of the time they speak Spanish too in the stores. So why me? They were singling out the fact that I was black. And I also spoke with Caridad, who talked about um, when she came to the United States as a child in 1980. She was misunderstood rejected by some other Cubans in Miami in grade school who did not accept her as either African American or Cuban. She says here, I couldn't talk to the, Af- the black American kids because I had no way of communicating because of my limited English proficiency. For the born Cubans, I was the black student or the black girl. And for the black students, I was not a true black. I was not a true sister, so to speak. And they always never understood why it was that I hung around people who didn't look like me. Right. What was really key for a lot of the Cubans that I talked to was really the contrast between the way that race is understood in Cuba versus the United States. And one of the big things that they uh, communicated was that in Cuba for them, there's this notion that everyone in Cuba that, that national identity is more important than racial identity, whereas in the U.S., they saw it as being the opposite, that their racial identity, their Blackness counted for more and was stood out most to the people that they encountered than their national identity. That had to be a shock. Yes, they were shocked by that, especially that they had to negotiate this not only with U.S.-born Americans, but also with other Cuban Americans and with some Latin American people from Latin America who did not expect that they could also be Latinx or Latino because they were black. The other thing that they encountered was also interacting with African Americans Often they would find that there wasn't an animosity there, but just a confusion about why they had an accent or why they spoke a certain way when the expectation was that a person who is Black would have unaccented English.
0: What do you think you have drawn from your deep immersion in just the complexity of racial struggle in Miami?
2: One thing that I really come away with from this is just how important it is to look at all the nuances of how people who are coming from different parts of the world and have their own history of involvement with race from their country of origin, how that intersects with the Black versus white or white versus other dynamics that we have had traditionally in the United States. I think this intersection is so important for us to understand the demographic change that we have in our country now and understanding the way race relations operate in our country um, today. And I'm also struck by the specificity of experiences of people of African origin when they come to United States depending on whether they come from Cuba or Latin America versus the other areas of the Caribbean or from the continent of Africa, that their experiences vary and we cannot lump it all in one box. But we can see that, unfortunately, there continues to be this kind of culture where there's a stigma attached to Blackness that we're continuing to fight.
0: Well, Monica Gassen, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you. Monika Gossin is a professor of sociology at William & Mary. She's the author of The Politics of Racial Division, Interethnic Struggles for Legitimacy in Multicultural Miami. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Record numbers of Latino students are enrolled in college, but there is still a huge achievement gap between Latino and non-Latino Americans in higher ed. Juan Espinosa is Director of Undergraduate Admissions at Virginia Tech. Karina Klein-Gable is Assistant Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at James Madison University. Juan and Karina also lead the Virginia Latino Higher Education Network, which is working to get more Latino students to and through college. Juan and Karina, why is it that college is more of a hurdle for many Latinx high school students? Don't we already have good programs in place across the country that give financial support and help with applications?
3: Yeah, you know, there are some wonderful programs offered around the country and uh, and here in Virginia. Uh, but when you look at it, our community specifically, we're such a diverse community. Uh, we have some families that are just recently arriving into the country and others uh, that have been here for generations. And the the level of access to these individual groups within our community varies greatly. And what we have found with Valhen, which is the Virginia Latino Higher Education Network, which I'm president of, is that if you specifically target and focus Hispanic and Latinx families, you're much more successful in reaching them. Uh, they have a higher level of comfort, regardless of what their background is. In participating a, in a program that will surround them with people that look like them and understand their culture and understand where they're coming from. And especially for some of the families that are more recently arriving here in the country, that language aspect, uh, being able to offer a bilingual programming is so key, not just for the student where the expectation is there are they are going to have an English proficiency to succeed in college, but for their parents to where they can get a better understanding of the programming they're getting involved in, and a better understanding of the college search process in general.
4: I also believe that sometimes we have this conception that, well, if only there were more funding, uh, if only more scholarships. But here at our organization, the Virginia Latino Higher Education Network, we understand that students also have to feel welcome. So we really try to find ways to, of course, support all the things that um, Juan just mentioned, but also make sure that we invite them to our campuses so that they feel welcome and that their families feel welcome on that campus as well.
3: Yes, absolutely. And I think that's the inclusion part of the outreach. Um, It's so important that not only are universities successful in attracting more diverse students, but those students truly feel like they are part of the community at that college or university. Uh, It's so important for these colleges and universities to understand that as they increase diversity from underrepresented and underserved students, they also have to increase the programming um, and the the focus on student success for these groups. Because all students, uh, regardless of their background, are going to have different challenges as they navigate higher education. Um, And so we just want to make sure that for these underrepresented and underserved students, that they have the resources clearly Uh, identified for them at the beginning of the process to ensure that if they do hit any speed bumps along the way, they know what to do in that case.
0: What's been the recent history at Virginia Tech of enrolling Hispanic and Latinx students? Has it been a hurdle in the past? Is it easier now?
3: It has been a hurdle in the past. When looking at our uh, underrepresented populations, not just our Latino numbers, but just African American and other unders- underserved populations, there has been a, a real push for years to be more accessible, but the numbers haven't necessarily translated to, to success. Uh, back in 2018, we introduced some really innovative changes in our admissions process, in our recruitment process, and put a large focus on just access in general that benefited not only our underserved students, but all students, because we made it easier to apply to Virginia Tech and easier to navigate the process. And And if you were offered, uh, did a better job of increasing the, the financial uh, incentives for you to make Virginia Tech a reality. Uh, but after those changes were instituted, we really saw a, a nice bump in our uh, in our numbers from our underrepresented groups. And when looking at Latino numbers specifically, prior to 2017, we were at around five six percent of our incoming class identifying as Latinx students. In our most recent class, it was ten point five percent, which is a great benchmark and a great feat in a lot of ways because that represents the overall demographics of Latinos in Virginia. And so that is our first underrepresented group that's truly represented in our incoming class.
0: Do you think that is because of the changes you made in the process or more because of the pandemic where a much more diverse population of students has flooded into colleges across the country?
3: I think it's definitely due to the changes because when those changes were introduced, it was two years prior to the start of the pandemic. And we've seen a steady trend of increases since those changes were first initiated. I think the advantage of the pandemic is it did remove a key barrier and that was standardized testing. So when you talk about the increase of of the diversity in the applicant pools, not just in Virginia but across the country, especially for more selective institutions, that was because a lot of schools went test-optional. And for a lot of underrepresented students and underserved students, they view that as a real barrier. And once colleges said that that was no longer a requirement, a lot of students you know, reconsidered and went outside their comfort zone. We find that with underrepresented and underserved students, they really suffer from imposter syndrome. You know, They really second-guess and in many cases self-select themselves out of processes that they otherwise would probably be successful in. Uh, And so removing that key barrier uh, really did increase the diversity. Now, the big question is, is that translating to enrollment for all colleges? For Virginia Tech, that did translate to an increase um, in diversity for incoming class. But again, with a lot of the changes we introduced, we have to give credit to that. For some other institutions, they did see an increase in their overall diversity of their pool, but that did not necessarily translate to the diversity of their incoming class. I feel like President Obama
4: said it best when he recognized that the future of the United States is inextricably linked to the future of the Hispanic, Latino, Latinx community. Um, We know that, you know, we we want all our students to be educated, whether that means an associate's degree through a community college, whether that is bachelor's attainment, that they go through a four-year college. We want them to be educated. And so I think that we focus definitely on making sure that we get that foot in the door and make sure the confidence is ready and make sure all of the college readiness preparation is done but also retention is extremely important so we have a much higher community college uh associate's degree rate for this population than we do for for bachelor's for finishing a four-year university or college and and we're intentional about that in making sure that we encourage our students that that yes you know we're so so glad that you went through the community college uh, process. We have great community colleges in our state, uh, but you know, consider finishing uh, at our four year institutions uh, because we know that the salaries will be higher and and jobs uh, will be of a wider variety if if they continue there. So, but it is something that we have to be intentional about because uh, we are still lagging in um, finishing the the four year college rates.
0: What is roughly the percentage of the population that's Hispanic or Latinx, and Conversely, what has been the percentage of college attendees and graduates?
4: Those numbers vary. Obviously, for Virginia, the census has, has, has now made it very clear that one in 10 Virginians are Hispanic. This is the fastest growing population in our state as well as, as in our nation, as far as from our colleges, it differs. So we see metropolitan universities, George Mason University, uh, VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, that have higher rates of uh, Latino, Latinx students than perhaps um, a a university that's in a a smaller town, which might have um, 7% or so. But what we see is overall All those numbers are definitely growing and universities are needing to intentionally uh, make sure that they are looking at those populations because in the next 10 years we know that that's going to be a a very important demographic for our universities and colleges. And that's the exact energy um, how our our founder, Dr. Maricel Quintana-Baker, In 2009, she was the only Hispanic member at SHEV, which is the State Council for Higher Education in Virginia. And then she started to realize that a lot of questions were were coming in from public and private universities in Virginia, and they were just asking questions about the growing Latino community in our state. And Dr. Quintana Baker realized that uh, there needed to be an organization that could coordinate connect these stakeholders, and and start really intentionally looking at this, this population of students. And that is how the Virginia Latino Higher Education Network came to be.
0: Karina, James Madison University hosts a short program each year for younger high school Hispanic students. Tell me what this program does for them.
4: Yes. And so our Latinx Leadership Academy came out of the need to make sure that we had a program for younger students in high school. So the Hispanic College Institute addresses students that are, you know, at that point in their high school experience where they're thinking about college and they're excited about, you know, the process, but a little terrified at the same time. We wanted to reach out also to the students that were rising rising sophomores that first just wanted to think about who am I? What might I want to do with my future? And we decided that that inner leadership is so important uh, to be able to to discuss with these students. So the Latinx Leadership Academy that's hosted at James Madison University is a two-night, three-day program where they will come and be on a campus uh, and really reflect on themselves, their background, their, their peers, their families. Uh, and so this last two years, we've been in the pandemic mode, and we've managed to hold these virtually, which has still been really successful because we've Ended with an in-person picnic um, this this last year, and we're able to invite the families and the students to be outside this past summer and and really kind of get that in-person experience. But that was the that was the goal is to make sure that all students in high school would have maybe one or even two opportunities, or maybe three, to to participate in uh, the hen programs.
0: Virginia Tech hosts a week long program called the Hispanic College Institute for Older high school Hispanic students, what do they get out of the one week?
3: Oh, it's life-changing. And I know that's kind of hard to understand when you hear it's just a week <laughs> long, but it really is a life-changing event. It truly is. Uh, we're bringing in students that, again, uh, represent this the diversity of the community of, of Latinos in Virginia. Uh, we have some students that are just learning English um, and the whole concept of higher education, is this recently being introduced to them. And others that, again, are uh, their parents went to college, in many cases completed master's or, or PhD degrees, and are, are looking to have a better understanding of how they can be successful once they're in college. Uh, a good chunk of our participants are first-generation students, though. Uh, and for uh, a good number of our students, uh, I think the most recent program is around 35 to 40%. It was their first time on a college campus, and it, and for for students to really be able to picture themselves at a college or university, they need to at least know what that environment feels like. Uh, and so, by bringing them on a college campus, you're you're making it more of a reality for them. You're making it seem more as a possibility because they're they're staying in a residential hall. They have a better understanding of what a college campus feels like. And when you're looking at Virginia Tech, which is a very traditional college campus uh, with a residential feel, uh, they, they feel like it's doable. Um, and, and the focus on the college access, the focus on how to be successful once you're in college, the focus on how to afford college, the, those are all major agenda items. But the biggest goal we're, we're chasing, and it's kind of the hidden agenda, hidden goal in HDI, mm. is building confidence. Is building confidence for these students to realize that they can do anything. And college is just one step along their journey of success.
0: Have you found that most of them then go on to college?
3: Yes. Uh, We do a pre-survey and a post-survey. And in the pre-survey, a small majority are even considering a four-year degree. And in the post-survey, not only do 100% of students now a plan on attending a four-year degree, but over 60% are considering a master's or a doctorate-level degree. And that happens just over the co- course of a few days. That's how impactful this program is.
4: And I think that peer... Part is so important too, is that, you know, we, we sometimes take for granted that so many of our high school students in Virginia have ec- experiences away from home. And as we're looking at some of the the families that we work with, you know, it's, it's a big deal to leave, you know, your, your home, um, and, and not know where your, you know, child is going to. And so we really reach out, uh, hablamos español con las familias. We make sure that we, 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 that we stay in contact in their their dominant language and let them know that their kids are going to be safe at our programs, Um, even though they're going to be at a university that might be up to two hours away. We've provided transportation to make sure that the students will arrive safely. And I think that, you know, that part is so important because when they have this experience, you know, they're then getting a chance to connect with other peers that might have gone through the same thing. And that is important because as they think about attending college, Students from, you know, Latino backgrounds want to also feel like, hey, I'm going to a college, and I'm also, I'm going to meet students from all all communities. But I also want to connect with those peers that that have something similar to my background. Which is why in our programs we also mention groups that are on campuses, like uh, Latinx student alliances, or there might be a, a faculty caucus um, that represents, uh, Hispanic or Latinos. And those are groups again, that are so important because we're, we're talking about building community here.
0: Is there a vignette you can share about a transformation? You saw yourself with a particular student who attended the Hispanic College
3: Institute? Oh yes. There's one that always sticks out on my mind. Uh, and this was about, uh, this was two HCIs ago. Um, but, uh, a tradition we do as students arrive on campus because we we bus them in uh, from different parts of the Commonwealth. We have a large group of of uh, HCI alums and and current HCI leaders, the Hispanic College Institute leaders, that are waiting for them to get off the bus. Now this is an excited group of students. Uh, we call them the Pep Squad. <laughs> They're screaming. They've got signs. They've got confetti. They want to make sure these students from the moment they step on campus feel loved and welcome. Because that's just so important uh, to this process, and so I remember uh, one bus was getting off, and you know you get a mixture of reactions. Some students that are stepping off the bus are really excited; others are absolutely terrified that there's this large group of strangers all of a sudden <laughs> welcoming them on campus. It seems like a lot. Um, but I remember this one particular student came out, looked terrified. Uh, and you know, I started some, a small talk with them, and they were really shy. They were very quiet. And then I was concerned because uh, just reading the body language and just in my conversation with them, I was like, this student might struggle uh, being thrown into a program like this. Um, and so I kept tabs on them, and I noticed that as the days progressed, this very quiet student, which really needed to, to be kind of pulled out of their shell for the first two days, by the third day uh, was engaging with questions, uh, was sharing stories, to where uh, after, uh, as part of our speech competition actually, this completely blossomed in front of the entire group of 150 participants, urging them to, to understand how important they are and their involvement in, in, in our society. Uh, whether that was voting, whether it was you know being supportive in the Latino community or within their community at home or in their schools, he he gave this rousing speech that ended up uh, ended up with a standing ovation from everyone at the program, and everyone was just shocked. And I was like, "Wow, this is amazing! Like, who, who is this kid? After just four days, He's, you know, I'm ready to vote for them. I'm ready to follow them to do whatever they want to do." after that, uh, and as they were loading up, because that was the last day, loading up on the bus as I head back home, I saw him and I immediately wanted to thank him for you know, his enthusiasm and his contributions in the program. And he hugged me and he got emotional. He was crying. Um, and I was a little bit confused. Uh, and then I came to realize, and, and I, I asked further questions because he whispered in my ear as he was hugging and he was getting emotional. He said, this program saved my life. And I, and I had to ask, well, what do you mean? And, and he told me that he was struggling with depression. He was struggling to trying to figure out what is his place in our world. And he had contemplated thoughts of suicide. And, and now all of a sudden he knew why he was here. He knew his purpose. He knew what he needed to do. He was rejuvenated and he knew what, what he needed to do to be successful and, and the importance he played for everyone else at that program. And so that's just one of many stories of the impact of these students that in many cases don't necessarily feel like they're part of something. After coming to HCI, after participating in Hispanic College Institute, they know they're part of something bigger and they're re-energized and they kind of see that purpose in life. That's an amazing story, Juan. And I have a story from
4: the summer where we had a a young woman at the Latinx Leadership Academy at JMU and at... At the Hispanic College Institute, we refer to familias for their groups, but at the Academy, we refer to casas, uh, which you know is 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 houses. And the the different casas will will have a project that they work with a small group and a counselor. And we had one student, and she was pretty newly arrived and felt very didn't really have the confidence to feel like she could present in in English, and. And the fact that when she presented their project, her peers in her casa created it in a way that she could say certain parts in English and then certain parts in Spanish. And they did it in in such a collaborative way. And afterwards, you know, she just got, you know, we were on Zoom, so it was a standing ovation on Zoom. But what I realized is that you know, our students come from such a variety of backgrounds. Some are, um, some are first generation. And so they've grown up bilingually. Others are second, third, and perhaps don't speak Spanish, but are, have a very close connection to their, to their background. And then you have more recent arrivals, students that, um, you know, perhaps left their home country in high school and were, were, were doing very well in their academics and then came to the U S and in a sense had to start over. And so to see those students support one another that way, it's really uplifting. I think for many of these students, uh, getting in the workplace earlier is sometimes what has to happen. You know, just, just now during the pandemic, within, you know, a year and a half, there were some high school students that uh became breadwinners for families maybe their 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 parents were sick or uh maybe they just realized that it was a time period that it was so such an unstable time and so we we saw we saw high school, high school students tell us you know right now I need to focus on supporting helping support my family that's a that's a big burden um and so that I think is what ends up being this this barrier of of getting educated because some students feel like okay i can I can make this much Uh, If I, if I work perhaps where, where my parents work. And, um, and of course the issue is that we know that the parents very much wanted a different life for, uh, for their children, but, but definitely the, the need to support family uh, can certainly uh, be just as, or if not more important for these students. And, but we want them to feel like um, focusing on their futures is just as important.
0: Well, Juan and Karina, thank you for talking with me about this today.
3: Oh, thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. It's
4: been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Juan Espinoza is Associate Vice Provost for Enrollment Management and Director of Undergraduate Admissions at Virginia Tech. He's president of the Virginia Latino Higher Education Network. Karina klein Gable is Assistant Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at James Madison University, and she's President-Elect of the Virginia Latino Higher Education Network. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. uvahealth.com With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quance, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.